2: to your show, Morgan, right now on Fast Money. Goldman's consumer collapse, why it's pushed into retail banking and fintech failed, and what impact it could have on CEO David Solomon's future. Plus, a buyback battle royale. Warren Buffett firing back, calling critics critics, either economic illiterates or silver-tongued demagogues. Is the oracle right or way off the mark? Later. Tesla's electric action ahead of this week's Investor Day, the role retail traders and options are playing during this recent run, and the AI frenzy gets a new friend. Snap launching an AI chatbot. Is this a bandwagon bet or a real use case for artificial intelligence? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Bono and Ice, and Guy Adami, and Mike Co. And we start off tonight with the countdown to Goldman Sachs's first Investor Day. In three years, it takes place tomorrow. And CEO David Solomon is on the hot seat. What is his plan for growth as questions swirl over the collapse of the company's consumer finance business? Our Hugh Sun put out a report today detailing that many of Solomon's own decisions led to the ultimate failure of the investment giant's Marcus Arm. Shares of Goldman rose half a percent today and are up more than 6% this year, lagging chief competitor Goldman Sa- Stanley, Morgan Stanley. Excuse me. So can Solomon deliver a strategy that will get investors back on board, he's got a lot of convincing to do, Tim, at this point when it comes to um, the the ability to create durable revenue streams at this point and and whether or not to trust him on things like Uh, a new venture like a consumer business.
3: Well, Goldman Sachs has traditionally been very geared towards the cyclicality in the investment banking world, but also in the sales and trading world. And if you think about where we've gone also for banks, even in the last four or five quarters, and I think the first quarter will actually prove to be a very strong quarter for FIC, for fixed income and currency and and commodity trading. I think Goldman is going to show that very resilient earnings, comparing them to Morgan Stanley at this point, um, which is what we used to do all the time. They were really the two big investment banks. Morgan Stanley changed their business model. They really became a wealth management firm. And and that's been lauded. I think a lot of this focus on DJ Saul is overdone. I mean, ultimately, as a guy that plays music on the weekends in a band, I don't think that that distracts you from your day job, by the way. Second of all, I also just look at Goldman's performance relative to the other banks. Look at it to the XLF. Really, since the COVID lows, it's outperformed the XLF by 35 percent. I mean, has Goldman really underperformed that much here? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think so.
2: But the whole notion that the whole DJ Saul thing resulted in a New York Times article a few weeks back, that goes to, and this is in Houston's an easy article. easy target. Right, that, that, that's an easy, an easy target. target. When, when a CEO is on the ropes, things like that start to come up and start being an issue. Because if you're a CEO who plays golf for six hours or 12 hours a day on the weekends, that, you know, or you're a, C, a CEO who DJs at night, right. what makes a difference? But apparently when you're on the ropes, it does make a difference doesn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, a tough backdrop (laughs) just exacerbates problems, right? So, I mean, that's just the way that, that's the way it goes. You signed up for that when you got in the seat. So, you know what? Yes, he's probably too harsh on him, but I don't, I'm not crying any tears. Now, I will say, performance aside, if you look at price to book, Goldman is lagging its peers. I mean, Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan, I believe, trade about 1.7 and one and a half times versus Goldman's one. And so the street really is telling you that they, yes, they have always outperform when it comes to trading in deal revenue. But the recurring revenues of what investors are looking for. And I would argue that they really had to make a push into that consumer finance business. When you look at the multiples that girl and Stone and, and and SoFi, et cetera, et cetera, were getting uh, uh, for for having like a fintech spin, or at least being able to purport that they had a fintech spin, I think that they would have been remiss to miss out on that opportunity. J.P. Morgan got the same type of criticism throughout the mortgage situation. Mm-hmm. They for they you know for all of that that revenue that was foregone, but when things fell out of bed. They came out shining. So I think it's a sim- similar story here. And I think, that at this point, there is an argument to be made that they should stick to their core competencies.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's part of the article that that Hugh wrote um, was that some of the choices that led to the downfall of choices like doing credit cards out of the gate, um, doing things like consumer loans out of the gate. And he cited this uh, this former credit card um, executive who went to Goldman Sachs, a lot of experience in the credit card industry, read the Apple agreement and said, who, who drew this up? We're giving away the store at this point. And so you got to wonder, Mike, for investors, you know, DJ Saul was in charge when all these decisions were, were made. So who, who should answer for them?
4: Yeah, well, first of all, I, th- I think it's a good point that when things go sour, whatever outside activities the CEO of a bank has are going to be under scrutiny. Everybody will remember when Bear was on the ropes, the scrutiny that Jimmy Kane was getting for playing bridge something that probably never would have attracted any attention at all had it not been for the performance of the bank itself. And the same thing is true here. Uh, I agree with Bonwin. I mean, it it makes good sense. If you think you run a financial powerhouse, and he does, they do, uh, it makes sense that you would take a look at what others are doing in financial services. And if you think you have the wherewithal to go into that space and try to compete, and I can see why they might think that that's the case. It is very interesting, though, that you would bring talent in that has specific expertise to consumer banking and not heed their advice. I mean, the credit card business, all of these affinity credit cards in particular, uh, that seems to be a lot of where the money is made. So it's kind of surprising to see. I actually got one of those Apple uh, Goldman credit cards, and a lot of people around here have. Um, you know, it seems like it's a pretty good deal for the consumer, and if that's true, then maybe it's not as good for the relative participants. And Apple strikes a hard bargain.
2: Yeah, Guy, what's your take on David Solomon? You know, we we actually I think we led it with Goldman Sachs uh, about a month ago. Um, and Guy we is asked, the alum, so I think for, you know, that's we true. To we we did ask the question then: Is are David Solomon's days numbered? And we'll ask that again tonight. What do you think?
5: All right, so I'll back into it for a second. I think David's done a tremendous job there. He took over in October 2018. I think the stock was either side of 200. If that's the one metric you want to look at, I mean, yeah, the stock's below 400 now. It's effectively doubled, though, in his tenure. So just on the stock front, I think he's done a great job. In terms of his tenure there, yeah, I mean, there have been some missteps, but there have been some missteps along the way for a number of CEOs at Goldman Sachs over the last 50 or so years. I think since Gus Levy took over in 1969, Nine gentlemen have held that seat. I think there were co-CEOs at one point. So the average tenure of these people, typically about five and a half, six years. Lloyd skews it because I think he was there for 12. Frank David's done a great job. You know, stability of earnings is something that always, people have always wanted at Goldman Sachs. And to a certain extent, he has brought that to the table. There's <clears throat> always going to be dissenters. Heavy is the head or uneasy is the head that wears the crown. But quite frankly, I think he's been a great steward of the company since he took over. Do, I, the question
3: is, do they still wear the crown? And I'm not going to say that they don't. I, I have to tell you, Goldman is still, to me, best in class when it comes to it. And when, when companies are going to market, they, they're reaching for Goldman first. I, I don't care what you say. And they're going to control the things that they can control. So going into an investor day, medium to long-term targets really are more about efficiency ratios of being north of 60 percent, uh, return on tangible equity being 15 to 17 percent. These are articulated and stated objectives of the bank. And right now, there's no reason to say that they won't get there. So um, it, it, they are beholden to macro. Goldman's always been beholden to macro. They swing a big stick. I, I think when they swing a stick in, in a down market, people are it's easier to focus on that. But I, I think they still wear the
2: crown. So what sort of multiple does, does that sort of specialized bank get? Um, one that will ride high when times are good, but will really feel the bumps when things are rocky. I mean, I think that's a question too. I mean, if we are to accept Goldman as a sort of traditionally what it has been, and that is to ride the cycle, then what should that be valued at?
1: But, I, I mean, I think that comes into, into trading and investing acumen, and they have shown that over the years. So I don't think they should be ding for the bumps. The, the situation there is that you're, you're just arguing that there isn't that margin of safety inherent in the business mm-hmm. model. It really is in the executive team. And until that changes, I think they'll continue to, to trade in line with where they've been around 10, 11 times. Yeah. Guy, what do you think? <laughs>
5: Well, it's interesting. I mean, J.P. Morgan gets that premium valuation, so that skews a lot of things. But so much is that predicated on the fact that everybody, including members of our panel, love Jamie Dimon. He tells a great story, and maybe they're deserving of that. But, you know, the question is how deserve it. And at a certain point, look, I understand why Goldman gets penalized to a certain extent, because I think there's still this fallacy out there that they're completely dependent on trading, fixed income, currency and commodities specifically. That used to be the case. It's really no longer the case. And I think as people understand that the business is far more robust, I think they're going to get the valuation that they deserve.
2: All right. Um, And by the way, David Selman will appear on Squawk Box tomorrow, 8 a.m. Eastern time. So you won't want to miss that one. Meantime, let's switch to Tesla. The stock is revving up. Shares rallying over 5 percent today, bringing its gains to an astonishing 68 percent for the year. And it's only February. The EV maker is holding its investor day on Wednesday at its gigafactory in Austin. So what role are options and retail investors playing in this big run? Before we get to that. Tim, what are we expecting, do you think? I mean, we could be getting updates on its battery technology, 46080, 4680 battery technology, operating margins, a cheaper model.
3: Yeah, the well, there, there are things that will move the needle to the upside and the risk reward to me will get to. But I, I think the things that would be the excitement in the fireworks are certainly around a, a Model 2, which was the affordable, the mass market car, really, that would be the global car, um, battery dynamics. And then even some update on China. I, I think the China demand thing has been very misunderstood at times because China has been down. Um, there's been some sense or demand or, or backlogs have been down. There's been some sense that China demand has fallen off the, off the, off the yeah. charts. But, I mean, stocks rallied.
4: Massively, Go
2: Yeah, on. And, and its volumes are, I mean, the discounts, Mike, have really worked.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. We talk about a, a global car, a value price car. The interesting thing is that now that uh, they've discounted the prices and we are seeing, you know, their eligibility for that federal tax credit return, the Model 3, which is their current entry-level car, actually is, is quite competitive with the average car price sold in the United States right now. Uh, You know, you're not talking about an immensely expensive car if you're talking about that one. Obviously, get up to the Model S Plaid, and things like that. It's a much more expensive vehicle. But the car maker is accessible to, you know, we'll call it average to upper middle class households if they're interested in buying one. But I will also say that there's inventory build and I can see it on the lots.
2: Let's get more now from CNBC contributor Gunjan Banerjee. She is the lead writer for The Wall Street Journal's live markets coverage. Gunjan, great to have you with us. You've written about Tesla extensively for the year, um, and the boom in options has been just astronomical. The role of the retail investor, though, in this ramp up has been pronounced, hasn't it?
6: So true, Melissa. And what a tear this stock has been on, as you said, up almost 70%. What we're seeing during this run is that individual investors have doubled down on the stock. It is by far the most popular buy among individual investors. That's according to some Vanguard research data as of this year. And single day purchases of the stock hit a record this year. So as tesla recorded one of its worst years on record you saw individuals say hey i'm going to double down i'm going to buy the dip in tesla shares and so far it's paid off this year in terms of the activity going to the investor meeting i would imagine like so many investors out
2: there they're expecting that elon musk will have some sort of rabbit to pull out of the hat regardless of how many rabbits or the size of the rabbit he's always got one he's, got, he's, always, he's got a, got there's always a rabbit right? he's a, he's a couple. so the expectation is a run-up into the event and then it's a sell the news event i mean i think that's sort of the consensus at this point, is that what you, you're seeing in the options market?
6: What was really fascinating today while the stock jumped, you know, five, six percent is a lot of the most popular trades were those tied to the stock jumping even more through Friday. You know, these were 220 calls, 225 calls. So that shows you that many investors were turning to the options market to bet on a continued rally in Tesla shares. And let's not forget Tesla. Tesla calls have been one of the most popular trades in the entire options market. Mm -hmm. Tesla options. um, You know, that market has just grown tremendously this year people have spent more than half a trillion dollars on Tesla options over the past year, making it the most popular option in the entire market. And that was certainly on display today while the stock was ripping higher,
3: especially while shorts are down, you know, seven and a half billion dollars in this calendar year, depending on how you're measuring that. But I mean, that's that's the other side of this. It's been a painful, painful place for the shorts.
6: Definitely. After a rare win for the shorts last year, that, that seemed to be short-lived for sure. <laughs> I mean, this seems almost, I mean, obviously Tesla's way too big to be
2: one, but it seems almost like a meme stock. I'm just wondering, Gunjan, you know, when you talk to people and you're reporting, um, does the opinion of investors, uh, of uh, the durability of Tesla's rally, does it change at all knowing that there's a, such a fervent retail base?
6: Yeah, I think I think that's what makes it such a tough stock for Individual and institutional traders to value right and that's what made it such a painful short because I do think many bearish investors underestimated that passionate camp and, and what I hear from investors I speak with is, hey, this is the next Apple. Um, you know the Tesla car is like the iPhone, and i'm not I'm not selling, even though the stock had its worst year on record. so I think that makes it a very, very tricky tricky trade for many, many institutional investors. But it may, it's part of what makes so many individual investors very enthusiastic about the stock because they have this community of traders that's that's kind of having diamond hands alongside them. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Great to
2: have you with us.
6: Thank, Thank you. Jim Banerjee of the Wall Street Journal. Um,
2: Guy, does it change your view? I mean, not only is there a really loyal and fervent retail shareholder base, but you know, S&P Global Mobility had a, had a survey out showing that, its owners, Tesla owners, are extremely loyal and that whatever brand damage Elon Musk has done with his escapades over the past year, let's put it that way, um, may have been overcome at this point.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that their current owners are loyal, but, you know, what they need are new owners, right? They need to continue to grow. It's a $650 billion company, and the loyalty that people have had to the stock, well... You know, they were loyal on the way from where the stock traded up to $450 or so in November of 21, down to 100 bucks. I mean, that tested their loyalty. And the stock, even with this 100% run, is still 50% or so from its all time high. So keep things in perspective here. 225 was the moving average, 200 a day, we got up to there. Again, you know, I'm more of the camp that it, we we sort of gravitate back down towards 165 which is a 50% or so retracement from this move, and we'll see.
1: Yeah, I think the technicals and momentum that you're referring to, Guy, are really what are gonna lead the trading in the stock. And you know, it's an age old question, whether or not valuation matters. And I would say it does, unless you're trading Tesla or the meme stocks, right? Like those seem to be, absent evaluation in terms of uh, you know the, the, the investing decisions that are going in from the retail community. I, what I will say is what you are seeing is retail traders becoming more proficient in the use of options. so I, and I think what that may set up for is actually a situation where the institutions finally are able to, to trade this from a profitable way even if they're not getting the direction right it will likely lead to dislocations and implied volatility and that's honestly where the investor the, the institutional investor likely has an advantage.
2: All right. Coming up, we're all over the after hours action. Zoom and Occidental shares on the move after reporting results will bring you the details from the quarters. Plus, the buyback bodyguard, the choice words legendary investor Warren Buffett had for critics of repurchase programs. More on that when Fast Money returns.
7: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Zoom. The video conferencing stock moving higher after beating estimates on the top and the bottom lines. A conference call now underway. Christina Parts and Nevelis has got the very latest. Christina.
0: Well, the CEO started the call by highlighting the success of Zoom contact center, Zoom One, and its virtual agent. Zoom wants investors to know it can diversify. The company handily beat EPS estimates, bringing in $1.22 adjusted versus the street estimates of $0.81. Q4 revenue were up uh, about 4% year over year, driven by enterprise revenue, which is Zoom's primary growth engine at the moment, but revenue growth has been decelerating for the past eight quarters. Online revenue was a little weaker this past quarter and the stronger dollar hurt foreign sales. That's why Q1 and full-year revenue guidance came in slightly lighter. On the call though, the CEO saying they too will embed AI into more workflows with Zoom IQ, Zoom Virtual Agent, as well as translation and captioning during live sessions. No other details though were provided, maybe during the Q&A, but that's still ongoing right now. The company though did also addressed the recent 15 percent reduction in employees the ceo eric Wan, saying in a recent blog post that he quote made mistakes in tripling zoom's workforce during the pandemic we will have zoom cfo on Squatbox tomorrow morning i think just around 8 30 a.m no
2: <clears throat> all right christina thanks christina Parks nevelis um nice pop in the after hours guy there's something for everybody i think in this report here
5: yeah Well, listen, you know, they're (laughs) holding on to their customers, there's growth, but there's some funky, I I don't want to say funky accounting, but, you know, if you look, stock-based compensation is up significantly. And if you look at gap income year over year, it's down probably 70% or so. So, to your point, you know, if you want to discount some of these interesting accounting methods, this stock-based compensation that so many companies are doing, yeah, it looks great. You look under the hood, not so much. With all that said, I mean, we traded down the levels we saw, you know, a few years ago and have bounced. So does the bounce continue? Maybe. And it's a fine company. You know, it's probably going to do, what, $4 billion, a $21 billion company. So I'm not hating on it, but you got to look under the hood on this one a bit, Melm's, as well.
2: You know, I saw the and a half percent jump and I immediately wanted to see what the short interest was on the stock to see if that explained it. I mean, it's it's less than seven percent at this point. It's you come in a too. lot. This, this <laughs>
3: was a stock four months ago. and we, It's had one of those moves. And, and again, off the bottom. The, the problem with Zoom here is it's treated on some level like it's a high multiple stock. It's not a high multiple stock. It's 18 times, 19 times forward, wherever you want. The problem is it's not a high growth stock either. So we're talking about 200,000 enterprise customers. And, and for a company that's become a verb, um, you know, it, it's a little too disappointing but so so is Twitter you know they're they're just it's established itself and the the front to back end collaboration communication platform just not happening and and I you know when I look at the growth and I look at their growing revenues about three or four percent over the next three years it's hard to get excited here
2: there's just so many other ways to zoom at this point uh, Mike I mean Band aid was a word and Xerox was a word, but there are a lot of other ways to make copies and and a lot this of
4: other be a bandages fun game out to there. Play, by the way, right? Exactly. Yeah. What, yeah.
2: What, yeah. What, yeah. Yeah. what guys we'll
4: get Guys get.
3: We do this all the time. Uh, obviously, Mike.
4: you can Skype. You can use Teams, mm-hmm. or you could use the outfit that the CEO and founder of Zoom came from, which is WebEx. And what's interesting there is, Guy pointed out. Look, if you buy Zoom, what you get is the earnings that come to the common shareholders. And if they're giving away a lot of, if they're basically giving away all of the upside in stock-based compensation, there's no growth there. And in fact, actually year on year, I think you're gonna see a net of those dilutive effects a decline. Meanwhile, you could actually buy Cisco at about 10 times earnings and they have Webex, which is where Zoom originally came from. So, you know, to me, you know, neither of these are growth companies, but I'd sooner buy Cisco, even if I don't use Webex over Zoom. I, I think that's a better buy.
1: Surprise. I'm going to be positive. So, listen, uh, we're talking about the growth being tepid, and it is, right? But Zoom is no longer trading at a valuation that would suggest that you're buying it because you're expecting some, some accelerating growth. At 20 times, you're essentially getting the stock where it was pre-pandemic for about a tenth, I repeat, a tenth of the valuation. So I this seems relatively fairly priced here. I mean, you still have the upside of possible takeout situation or acquisition take. Situation, and if they are able to combat uh, this dilution, share buybacks, etc., we maybe get to that later. Then I think there is still some upside left in the stock.
2: Right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next.
1: Buyback, clap back.
5: The Oracle of Omaha sounding off and defending stock buybacks. Warren Buffett's choice words for the critics and why buybacks could be a boon for the markets. The details ahead. Plus, brace for more volatility. Our next guest says it could be a bumpy road ahead for markets while he sees a slowdown coming in the second half. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
7: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Occidental Petroleum. Shares of the energy company in the red after falling short of Q4 estimates on the top and the bottom lines. Occidental also announcing a new $3 billion buyback program. Our Pippa Stevens has been looking through the report. Pippa, what's the latest? That's right, Melissa. Oxy missing estimates as the average realized price for crude oil dropped 12 percent quarter over quarter, with domestic nat gas prices down 37 percent. Oxy earned $1.61 per share excluding items during Q4, which was $0.19 cents short of estimates. Revenue also shy of expectations down 12% from Q3. However, for the full year, revenue more than doubled compared to 2021, with net income hitting a record $12.5 billion. The company announced a new $3 billion buyback after completing its prior $3 billion share repurchase last year. And also raised its dividend by 38%. Now, some of the stock's weakness here could be thanks to the 2023 capex guide of between 5.4 and 6.2 billion. Analysts were looking for the low range of that at 5.6 billion, according to Street Account. Melissa, Pippa, thanks, Pippa Stevens. Um, we got to go to Guy because Oxy was uh, one of the O's in Mojo, Mojo, his acronym for 2023.
5: And as I mentioned, it really doesn't matter which O in this case. You know, Tim will talk about this, and he'll be correct. I mean, it's a cash flow story. Yeah, earnings matter. I totally get it. But, I mean, a new $3 billion uh, buyback on top of, you know, they just finished their old one. It's a $53 billion company, so that's not insignificant. $4 billion in cash flow. I mean, they're doing everything right. It's an operational leverage story. And I think you got to continue to own it. I think Buffett is now over 20%. My sense is he will continue to buy the stock. It's just my sense. I think the stock goes higher. A lot of people, a lot of analysts out there like it. Yes, it sold off from that Buffett high of, I think, 74. But you're buying Oxy here. You're not selling it, in my opinion. Yeah, Mike?
4: Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, when you take a look at the dividend, there are some other energy names out there whose dividends were a little bit higher. I think an increase is uh, is appropriate. I mean, it's a little bit surprising to me, given what we've seen in natural gas in particular, that too many people are caught off sides. Of course, you're going to see some, uh, some revenue declines as the prices for the things they se- say uh, are selling fall. But uh, you know, I still think it's a reasonable value here.
3: Yeah, it, it is a reasonable value. I get a little concerned about they have one of the more levered balance sheets. Guy talks about the free cash flow dynamic. We, we've talked about the div story here and we've talked about Buffett. Um, to me, of, of all the places you could be in the oil and gas space, Oxy's not one of them. And again, Buffett has an option to buy up to 50 percent of the stock. I think that's well into the stock. So um, I, you know, to me, I look at first of all, I think you have to. Pay attention to where a lot of these energy stocks are coming back to that 50-day. We're at a key level to see where we're going to hold a lot of these things as things have been trading sideways. I will go on to say they are stories of companies that are improving balance sheets and having higher payout ratios right now. I think that's in the stock price here.
2: Coming up, Buffett-Biden buybacks. The war words swirling around stock buybacks and whether or not they help shareholders. We will dig in next. Plus, get ready for a short and shallow recession. That's a call from Evercore's. Julian Emanuel, he'll join us next to talk about why he sees stocks testing their October lows. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back right after this.
5: Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks bouncing back from their worst week of 2023 with the Nasdaq rising more than six-tenths of a percent. Still major indices all in pace to close out February with losses. Among the winners today, CGen rallying more than 10 percent after a report that Pfizer is in talks to acquire the cancer drug maker. Union Pacific also up 10 percent today. The railroad company announcing CEO Lance Fritz would step down this year amid pressures from activist investor Sorbon Capital. Well, the Oracle of Omaha is clapping back at stock buyback skeptics, Warren Buffett reigniting the debate in his investor letter calling any critic of repurchase programs, quote, either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue. These comments come after President Biden's jab at big oil companies in his recent State of the Union address.
3: I think it's outrageous. Why? They invested too little of that profit to increase domestic production. Instead, they used the record profits to buy back their own stock rewarding the CEOs and
0: shareholders.
2: Economic illiterate or silver-tongued demagogue. All right. uh, Meantime, the Wall Street Journal reports that annual stock buybacks among major companies are projected to top $1 trillion for the first time ever this year, and that these programs are giving support to markets this year. It's interesting that he addressed this. This is largely seen as an issue that would be dead on arrival basically it wouldn't it wouldn't actually pass mustard there's already one percent tax on no, the ira four times no way so
3: no no way of four times tax on it and it's a political issue it's been a political football yeah. we've talked about this on this show if you're a company getting us bailout money no of course not um if you're a company that's buying back your shares um you know the the argument for the folks that say hey we had a huge tax break for corporate America. I would argue that that tax cut for corporate America was about making American companies competitive on a global scale. And and it doesn't mean that they can't figure out how to to buy back shares. I I think this is more of a market discussion and what it's meant for stocks and both in terms of the demand of the buyback and then actually the EPS support at a time when 68 percent of the companies have beat this quarter. I think that's great. That's actually uh, a significantly lower beat rate than we've had in the last four or five quarters. So uh, buybacks are helping the market here massively.
1: They are, and I'm not opposed to buybacks. What I am opposed to is sweeping general, generalizations used to criticize sweeping generalizations. And I just find that, I found that just a bit ironic. Did I just use one? No, no. I'm okay. talking about I'm talking about. <laughs> I feel like Biden and Buffett, the double okay. Bs. Right. Um, anyway, so yeah, listen, we can talk about the tax efficiencies, we can talk about combating dilution. Those are good reasons to use it. Now, but when you are essentially foregoing long-term value, trying to prop up the, the, the stock price, artificially in the short term so that you meet other type of uh, stock award metrics. I think that is a problem. Mm-hmm. And I do think you at least need to acknowledge that that is something that might drive buyback uh, type of activity. So I think there's two, there's two coins aside. I just found it a bit ironic that, you know, you, you, you're not a demagogue or, or silver-tongued demagogue, whatever you use. I, I think to have an intellectual debate about the merits of any type of public corporate action is, is worth merit. Uh, Mike, what's your
2: take on
4: this? Uh, well, first of all, you know, I, I read his comments, and I don't think he said that every criticism of share repurchases uh, deserved what, right. you know, he was talking about. In fact, he said some. He said, any. in fact, actually what he was saying is anybody who says all stock buybacks are, then he mm-hmm. was labeling those which people. He wasn't actually referring to all buybacks. In his own case, look, he wants to buy his own shares back when he sees uh, that he can purchase them for less than book value, which is a, an intelligent A deployment of capital. And there are other instances where that makes sense, too. If you have large cash balances, as many companies did over many years, they have no returns on that and they don't see good and worthwhile investments that they should be making, then they should be returning that money to shareholders because it is, after all, their money. I mean, that's the important thing to remember here. I mean, and I think a lot of that gets lost. It's very easy, I think, with all of the rhetoric, but that's the thing we really have to return to.
2: All right, for more on the corporate buyback spree and the overall markets, let's bring in Julian Emanuel, Senior Managing Director at Ivercore ISI. Julian, great to have you with us. Um, I would imagine that you are not against uh, buybacks in, in the line of business that you, but of course, we do see companies that do use it for other reasons other than just merely capital allocation. Um, we see value in our stock. It is used as sort of a accounting, I don't know, trick.
8: There are lots of nuances, okay? And, but we have to understand one thing that over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, and frankly going back further, shareholders like having cash return, whether it comes in the form of buybacks or it comes in the form of dividends, and buybacks have been one of these mechanisms. Now the difference is is that you're now in an environment where there's an actual cost to money for the first time in many many years. So you're not likely to see companies borrow to to uh, increase their buybacks. Which that's a good thing, uh, but on the other hand, you know, we're not fans of legislating what you should and shouldn't do. Let the market do that.
2: Yep. Um here here to that. Let's get to your, you on the markets at this point. I'm not sure based on the notes where exactly you stand. Bear's positioning is neutralized, but you see some of the challenges getting higher and higher for the markets.
8: So it's an incredibly complex environment. We've said uh, uh, very recently that if you're not confused, you're probably not paying attention. Um, And that is how the market is trading back and forth between 3,800 and 4,200. From our point of view, this whole idea, however, that you've gone from despair in December when we saw this massive tax loss liquidation to all of those stocks being the leaders in the market Neither narrative is correct, but ultimately the odds of recession, given the collapse in money supply, given the t- rollover in leading economic indicators, and given, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room, the yield curve. Tell us that we're going to have a recession at some point, and so therefore we see a retest of the October
3: lows at midyear, not be- before it. Is, and that's the point, right? Like we're not stocks can't retest until you have a recession or until you've begun to price that in.
8: Well, the the, the fact of the matter is, going back to 1962, you have never had a bear market bottom right. before the start of the recession. And Ed Hyman's view is that we're going to have a short and shallow recession. And I think part of the narrative in January is we got very happy that the inflation data was calm for that time. And that got people to believe more in the soft landing scenario. But now here we are. And the Fed's going to just keep on going until something either softens or
1: invariably, as it has through most of history, breaks. Julian, as we wrap up earnings season and we start getting a lot more, I would seemingly more focus on economic data. How do you think that translates into market activity, trading activity, investing activity? So
8: that is actually another one of the challenges. First, we have to step back and say this has been the first earnings season of the last three where uh, investors were not able to completely shrug off the fact that estimates came in. That earnings season was, I mean, you had year-on-year declines in EPS for the first time since 2020. Uh, And, you know, unlike October and and July earnings seasons, you didn't have the index rally. So it's very much a stock selection environment. And actually the vacuum of, of news between now and the unemployment report on the 10th, how stocks trade and how yields trade. We think the yields have gone a little bit too far here perhaps in the near term. Let's see how stocks trade if yields pull back. If stocks don't respond positively to that, as they have for the vast majority of the last year, that'll be new information that perhaps we're a little bit more concerned about the slowdown.
2: Last quick question, Julian, and that is your, your call for a retest. of The October lows is mid-year this year. That roughly coincides with where uh, a lot of people see the peak Fed funds rate. And I'm wondering if that is a coincidence or if that's exactly why?
8: No, it's it's no coincidence at all. And I think the biggest debate among both investors and frankly, the Fed, is how monetary policy works with the lag. There's a a school of thought that says it's only six to nine months now. Well, we'd actually say it's probably more like 24 months because the stimulus was so huge in 20 and 21 that it's just starting to wear off now. And so you get to the second half of the year and the, the uh, hiking that started in March is just going to start to kick in.
2: That's interesting. Julian, thank you. Good to see you. Julian Emanuel. Guy Dami, I saw you nodding uh, in agreement with Julian when it comes to the lasting impact of the stimulus, and so therefore the lag effect is going to be even greater this time. That's interesting.
5: Yeah, and if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. I dig Julian, mm-hmm. as you know, and I think he's exactly right. I think, the mar- well, I think market participants are underestimating the lag effect, the impact that this... Fa- Listen, I mean, it's historic what's going on over the last 13 or 14 months. And they see, you know, no sign of waning. I mean, they're steadfast in their desire to quell inflation. And quite frankly, it appears as though inflation is about to rear its ugly head again. So I just, for whatever reason, the market doesn't want to seem to acknowledge it. Recently, yes, but not nearly to the extent that it should. And again, you know, if you're looking at $200, $210 worth of earnings, you know, a 16 17 multiple, I mean, you can do that math, Mel. We're looking at an S&P that, in my opinion, should be 3,400.
3: And I think we're in an 18 multiple guy. And I think if you think about where we've gone from from November, or certainly those October 13th lows, and we talk about this all the time, you know, semis up 42%. I would emphasize what Julian said is I don't think stocks have begun to really price in this divergence between the bond market. We've had 60 basis points since that last payroll number. We have a payroll number next Friday. I think that actually sets the market up for possibly a place to rally a little bit because, again, bond yields have had such a massive move. It hasn't been Fed rhetoric. It hasn't really been the PCE and the other inflation. It was that payroll number that sent this thing into the stratosphere. And I think if you get any kind of a a pullback on jobs, I think that gives equities a little room.
2: Coming up, some big action brewing in the corporate bond market, how options traders are playing the move next. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here's Walgreens CEO Roz Brewer.
7: We actually have more shared values
2: than we really understand because so many of us face adversities or different trials or tribulations, not only based on race and gender, And so what are those things that might feel like they hold us back, but actually they give us the strength to be who we really are. And so
7: outside my community, I'd love to have conversations about who we are at our core and then begin to share our lived experiences and find those commonalities and then realize that race and gender have sometimes less to do with why we are not interacting with each other at our best points.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. The two-year Treasury note briefly touching its highest level since 2007 today. But the real action could be brewing in the corporate bond market, where one options trader is betting on a return to pandemic lows for the HYG. Mike, you spotted this one earlier today.
4: Uh, yeah, HYG is the ETF that uh, tracks uh, high yield bonds or other, or sometimes known as junk bonds. It's always one of the busier ETFs, and and today we saw puts outpacing calls by over two to one. Actually, lately that's not unusual. It has been overwhelmingly bearish uh, for at least the past month or so. The busiest contracts were the April 72 puts. Over 40,000 of those traded. That largely the result of a big purchase of 15,000 of the April 7269 put spreads. Buyer paid 41 cents. Now, the buyer of that is either betting that this is going to fall or at least hedging against it. I should point out, though, that that isn't necessarily a rate bet because TLT, which is the ETF that is more of a rate bet, actually saw some bullish bets. So what you're really seeing here, I think, is a bet that the spreads will widen.
2: Yeah. Guy, of course, we watched the HYG a lot for what it tells us about uh, the general markets.
5: Yeah, I agree. And listen, we're not suggesting we trade it. I mean, Mike's pointing out what options traders are doing. Mm-hmm. Karen's talked about this for a while. And we have said, listen, this is one that you should have up on your screen, doesn't move a lot. But when it does, it's telling you a story. And listen, I think HYG went from 7040 in September back up to 78. But it's starting to do that sort of slow dance lower. And, you know, Julian talked about it. I think the Fed continues until something breaks. My concern is this something that may break is going to be in the form of the credit market, and HYG is front and center in terms of that.
3: And weaving Julian and weaving even into the segment talking about banks, it's been a pretty good run of outperformance of, of banks. But if you the, the, the part of the credit markets that we should be concerned about is the 1.6 trillion dollar uh, unhedged levered loan market, which really should be the most vulnerable here. We talk about all the time. Guy mentions this. I've mentioned this. A uh, trillion dollars outstanding in consumer credit cards, which is at the peak of, of, of where it's been at, at all times. And you've even got um, spiking rates on subprime auto loans. So you know the, a lot of these metrics are adding up, saying that rates are hurting and just haven't really bit yet.
2: Yep. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, putting the chat in Snapchat, the social app partnering with ChatGPT as the AI race heats up. So is it time to join the convo for the details from Fast Money returns? Welcome back to Fast Money. Snap entering the AI race today, rolling out its own chat GPT-powered chatbot for Snapchat plus subscribers. Shares is finishing the day in the green, though well off the highs of the session. Now Meta is getting in on the action, too. For more on the AI, AI race, let's bring in Julia Borst. And Julia.
9: Well, Melissa, the AI race is definitely on. Mark Zuckerberg just announcing this afternoon on Facebook that Meta is creating what he calls a new top-level product group focused on building new experiences around generative AI. He says short-term, they're focused on building what he calls creative and expressive tools, long-term, he says they're developing AI personas and they're working on it, creating AI experiences with both text and images along with video. This announcement came after SnapShares gained about 1% on the announcement that is starting to roll out a new AI chatbot for Snapchat Plus's 2.5 million paying subscribers. It's called My AI and is built on OpenAI's latest GPT technology. And it aims to help Snapchat's paying subscribers with the likes of trivia questions, composing messages poems or stories to send to their friends. Now this shows how Snap aims to deploy generative AI to build its paying user base. But we have to remember that Mark Zuckerberg, he warned today that there is foundational work to complete before getting into what he called really futuristic experiences. So Melissa, there's definitely debate about how quickly some of these new tools should be rolled out for public consumption. You
2: gotta wonder if Mark Zuckerberg's thinking, oh, I should have renamed the company AI instead of just Meta or Meta AI or something. I missed the chance. Julia, thank you. <laughs> Julia Borston everybody's in on it, Tim. All of a sudden, everybody's got something to roll out.
3: Yeah, and, and look, I, I think Google was oversold on this. and I think N- Nvidia is overbought. I actually shorted a little bit of NVIDIA today, a little tactical short. I'm, I'm, it's part of a barbell. I have plenty of other exposure on the other side. But, you know, I know all about this 10-year deal with Microsoft. I mean, it's been told me blue in the face. I know all about that they are hardware and a software uh, kind of hybrid that is a way to play it now. And I know that there are 60 times forward earnings, and, and they've outperformed the S&P by 111% since October. I mean, it, at some point... You You know, I think there's a chance to be tactical on this, and I am.
1: Yeah, I mean, the arms race is on. I think if you've got anything that's AI, AI adjacent, you try to at least find some way to roll it out. I I think the best thing Snap has going for it is that this AI bot is likely going to dissolve in 30 seconds. So, uh, yeah.
2: I'm waiting for companies to be like Long Island AI and Riot AI. And (laughs) remember those days when everything was a blockchain or something, Guy? I know you remember these.
5: (laughs) Yeah, of course I do. I'm waiting for the next for the AI gate, like that silver gate that we fricasseed a few months ago. <laughs> Quickly, because Tim made fun of me back in early February. Remember we talked <laughs> doji stars and yes. Gap Island oh, <laughs> reversals? How can we forget that? I wasn't the doji making fun of you. We yeah. yeah. pick on the ones yeah. we love, by the way. Come I want on. you to take a look at that Facebook chart. And by the way, to answer Tim's earlier question, the top of that list, of course, is Q tip, because it's not a Q tip. Uh, it's a cotton swab, but of course, Q tip has become the vernacular. Back to you, Mel. That
2: goes back to our our game that we were playing earlier today. It's a fun game, by the way. It absolutely is. Uh, Up next, Final Trades. Set your clocks 8 a.m. tomorrow. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. By the way, I misspoke earlier. David Solomon didn't greenlight the Apple credit card deal. It was done before his watch. Um, But meantime, catch this interview. That's 8 a.m. tomorrow on Squawk Box. Let's go around the horn for Final Trade Time, Guy. Sticking with energy,
5: Paul Sam X-ray. Michael Co.
4: I'm gonna take Cisco low growth over Zoom. win. I like the uh short duration part of treasuries, short-term treasuries.
2: Tim Seymour, welcome back by the way. You had a fabulous vacation. It was
3: it was lovely, but it's better to be here right now. And I think NVIDIA, I misspoke, not 113%, 83% better than the SP. I think it's gone too far tactical short, NVIDIA.
2: All right. Thanks for watching. Fast. Stay back here tomorrow at five for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
6: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy,